Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi. And Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And today on the show, we have Errol Morris. Really, really surprising. <laughs> I didn't realize that Errol Morris knew we existed or knew who we were, um, but it was... Yeah, and apparently he's a reader. He was telling us that he reads LA Review books. Truly amazing. He's a smart man. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he doesn't even like LA that much. It's true. I'm not surprised. It's uh, a necessary evil is what I believe he called it. <laughs> yeah, it's a coaster. But we are so excited to have him here. I'm definitely a, a hero of mine, so... Glad we get to talk to him. Yes, let's do it. Today we have with us Errol Morris. Errol Morris is an acclaimed filmmaker and author. His movies have won numerous awards, including a jury grand prize at the Berlin International Film Festival for his 2008 documentary on Abu Ghraib Standard Operating Procedure, an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2011 for his film The Fog of War, and Best International Documentary at the Bergen International Film Festival for The Unknown Known, his film on Donald Rumsfeld in 2013. He has received five fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a MacArthur Fellowship, and in 2007 he was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His newest documentary, The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography, opened in Los Angeles last week and is coming soon to theaters around the country. We are here with Errol Morris. We're lucky enough to have him in the studio. Errol Morris hardly needs an introduction. You could try introducing me to myself. Well, Errol, meet yourself. You are a prominent documentary filmmaker. You've done well for yourself, so you should feel good during this introduction to yourself. His latest film is called The B-Sides. In the singular, not the plural. Oh, his latest film is just one B-side, although the film features quite a number of B-sides counterintuitively from the title. Notwithstanding. Notwithstanding. And so we are lucky enough to have him here. Errol, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So maybe let's just start with a description of what this movie is about and who your subject is in the B-side. The B-side is my loving portrait. I think that's a fair description of a close friend, Elsa Dorfman. We both live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I moved to Cambridge uh, over 25 years ago from New York City, and Elsa and I had mutual friends, and we saw an ad in the newspaper. Elsa was doing a benefit, taking photographs, so we brought our son, Hamilton, over to have his picture taken, his Polaroid picture taken. And that was the very beginning. Hamilton was four years old. He's now 30. So oh, wow. we've known them for a while. Yeah, you have. It's hard to s- summarize a relationship that's gone on for a substantial period of time. What is the summary sentence? I've always admired her work, and I admire it more and more over the years. I see her as 
a kindred spirit in many, many ways. I'm not sure what the term means, although I use it all the time, this element of self-presentation. Here's what I think it might mean. Uh, People pay to have their pictures taken by Elsa. They come to her studio. They present themselves to her camera. Usually, I would say invariably in street clothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a partnership, a clear partnership between subject, photographer, and I suppose you'd have to throw into the mix the medium, the, the nature of of a Polaroid photograph, which becomes a communal activity. I don't know how better to describe it. You go to her studio, um, Elsa takes your picture. You stand there with Elsa watching this picture emerge. Uh, You see it develop in front of you. Um, And it's something that you do with Elsa. It's not Elsa just taking your picture. Right. Can you actually talk about that? I mean, there is a sense of the Polaroid process is it's it the it makes the photo taking an event, right? Like so it's all happening in the moment and you actually see the one of the things that was so magical as a child about the Polaroid is that you actually back when you used to have to develop film, um, you could actually see it immediately after you've taken it. So there's a sense like... Close to immediately. Yeah, right. Sorry, sorry. There was a lot of shaking and then it took about, what, a minute or two um, for it to fully develop. But that, I, you know, can you talk about a little bit about the kind of intimacy of the event itself? It's different from really other kinds of photography. Nowadays, we're used to the advent of digital photography... Mm. Pictures, first of all, are not on paper anymore. They're on screens. Right. If there was something ephemeral about them from the very beginning, they're even more ephemeral, if anything, today. It's hard for me to think about Elsa, and I can't really speak of other people's experiences of having their photograph taken by her. I once, years ago, had my photograph taken by Richard Avedon, and there was something about Avedon's process that reminded me of Elsa. Mm. Mm. Maybe it's true of really, really great photographers. Uh, you don't know when your portrait is being taken. Elsa will engage you in conversation, and then bingo, suddenly the shutter is pushed. There's a flash. So you're enveloped in a process of more than just simply taking a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to babble about my own work, whether it's true or not, you never know, that really good documentary film contained information about not just the subject, but the person actually making the film as well. You were preserving, in some sense, a relationship. So if I talk about Elsa as being a kindred spirit, that's certainly part of it. I love Elsa, pure and simple. I think you could really tell from from the movie that you you have this feeling for her because she's she's such a it she really seems like a loved object uh, in terms of and and by object I mean she herself is not the but as an object of um, sort of inquiry or an object and subject for the film. I think of her in, in many ways as a role model. Could I be more like Elsa? Really? In uh, what way? In many 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 ways. Could I be that unpretentious? I hardly think so. I don't think I'm (laughs) capable of it. 
I think there's a pretentious element in me that can never be excised. <laughs> it's there, like it or not. Elsa is so ingenuous, so forthcoming. Years ago, she asked me to write an application for a Guggenheim. And I warned her. I said, okay, I got one. But every time I recommend someone from Guggenheim, they don't get it. So I wrote one. She didn't get it, <laughs> um, which, of course, annoyed me because you feel like not only the person that you've recommended has been rejected, but you, too, you have been rejected. But I wrote in the application that Elsa's work was the perfect combination of dime store photography and Renaissance portraiture. And I'll even stick with that, even though it's a little pretentious. <laughs> I'll stick with it. I think it's a good description of her work. After interviewing so many people who um, you might not have wanted to spend a lot of time with outside of the interview forum. Really? <laughs> I'm, I don't know. Uh, I thought it was a departure to see you, yeah, speaking with someone who I would think might be your friend um, apart from the film. And um, I wondered if that is my friend. Is your friend <laughs> right? Apart from the well, film. but or right? But as a viewer, I didn't know that. So I wondered, um, was that intimacy ever? Did you ever struggle with that, thinking that you might be too close to her after spending so much time speaking with people who you probably had more distance from because of things they had done, or just the fact that they were strangers before you started working with them? How did you deal with that, or did that ever come up? Someone said this film was a departure for me. I don't think I agree, but I did point out, yes, it's true that Elsa is not a war criminal, <laughs> as far as I know. As as yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. You, you don't uh, know some maybe what she's done. <laughs> absolutely. But to the best of my knowledge, she is not a war criminal. Knowing and liking somebody does create a burden. It's a different kind of a burden. Am I doing a good enough job? Have I failed Elsa? Is this movie going to capture her and her art in some meaningful way? There's all of that, absolutely. And as a result of making the movie, we're still friends. That's good. I keep asking Elsa and Harvey when they're going to start the lawsuit. <laughs> but they have assured me repeatedly that that's never going to happen. And I see how happy Elsa is watching the film. Hmm. Was making the film a collaborative process with her? Or did you... Of course. Did, you really, yeah. did she see it, the how edits? How could it not be? How involved was she in, in terms of when you were working on the movie? Well, since she's in the movie... Well, she was yeah. quite involved in the, front of the camera. In front of the camera, that's a level of involvement. Yeah. And entirely forthcoming about material in the, the house that had been lost, buried, mm -hmm. misplaced. Uh, she hadn't ever heard since the time it was first played, uh, the phone recording, uh, Allen Ginsberg calling Harvey and Elsa for the last time. We found these old movies of Elsa roller skating we found all kinds of things. We found uh, that clip of uh, Elsa with Isaac, uh, Elsa telling her, her son to wave to the future. We found all kinds of 
truly wonderful and meaningful things. In, in that sense, I mean, it was you've known her for over 20 years, right, um, Elsa Dorfman, yeah? That's person, yes. I <laughs> so, I mean, was there anything new that you learned by interfacing with her as a documentary subject rather than just as your in-real-life friend? I wonder if there is really a difference. I mean, when Elsa is in front of my camera, it's not as if I think of her as Elsa, comma, documentary subject. Okay. She's Elsa. Um, <laughs> uh, I, um, I, of course, learned things. Why would you bother making films if you couldn't learn something? Well, what were some of the things that you learned? Like, what surprised you? Because sometimes it's after knowing somebody for so many years, it's hard. Well, you can always be surprised by somebody, but you kind of have to work at finding it. It seemed like this film was both incredibly organic and probably also very revealing. Both are true. The film clips, material from the past, photographs that I'd never seen before. Hmm. Her archive is vast. Yeah. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of black and white photographs, uh, thousands and thousands of 20 by 24 Polaroids, and on and on and on and on. It certainly reminded me of how much I like her work. Okay. And it became clear, if it wasn't clear already, of why I like her work and why I like her. I mean, she's a photographer. She's also a kind of poet. Mm. And her way of describing things is just really nothing like it. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We are lucky enough to have Jonathan Lethem back in our studios today to give us a book recommendation. Jonathan, what are you going to recommend today? Okay, well, I've been thinking over this. So the last time we talked, I was raving about Alison Lurie and how she's, you know, hiding in plain sight. She's this just great, really satisfying novelist, very worldly and funny. So I'm going to give you one of her books, and it's site-specific. This is one of her earliest novels. It's called The Nowhere City, and it's about Easterners who come to L.A. and the way they're, they find themselves perplexed and fulfilled and their, their relationship is put under pressure because this young couple has moved from the East to Los Angeles. And, you know, Lurie is just... It's amazing sometimes that people deny themselves the most simply pleasurable novelists. She doesn't make enormous claims for importance in her books. There's no heavy philosophical or political lifting going on. They're just beautiful, charming, witty, casually erudite novels that any literary reader would would devour. And that's what I expect you'll do when you get hold of The Nowhere City, is devour it. That sounds really good. I suspect people don't do it because it feels so much like eating a little Marshmallow or something, well, you know, you don't... We are an anhedonic culture. We have the Protestant work ethic undermining our... It's this very American. It's like we uh, cherish our freedom and the pursuit of happiness, but we are very, very anxious about things that are actually just... Pleasure. Magically pleasurable, not stressful. If it, It's often is the case that literature only passes the smell test if uh, someone tells you that it's important or hard work in some way. Alison Lurie's books aren't necessarily important or hard work. They're just art. So how does your experience living in L.A. match with the book that you're reading or compare? 
The thing about the L.A. novel is, for a long time, it is the story of people coming from the East Coast and marveling over this place and trying to get a handle on it. Even, you know, someone like Raymond Chandler with his English school, you know, education, or, you know, Nathaniel West. And increasingly, then, you get people who who are from here or who can kind of put a handle on it. Lurie is, what, she's just the generation before mine, and what's amazing is to see how continuous some of the both the prejudices and the assumptions, but also the real experiences of people coming from Eastern cities and dealing with the spatial reality, the thin layer of history and civilization that has been laid over the top of this place. And yet, then again, the weird echoes of much more ancient realities that are being erased all the time here, but somehow also present themselves. And in the Nowhere City it's also, it's a novel about the fact that in some ways the East Coast is the past and L.A. is the future, that the woman and the couple kind of experiences the liberations of Los Angeles in a way that's, it's a place of possibility and, and reinvention. And even, you know, at this late date, I still experience it that way that, you know, the New York world that I came out of, even though I came out of a kind of eccentric bohemian quadrant of it, it really is defined by old hierarchies and institutions. It's sort of, it's European in many ways. L.A. isn't that. L.A. is, it's flat in good and bad ways. It's really a place where money and status are kind of invented on the fly, but, you know, it's not old school Ivy League lineages that define power here or define how people locate themselves, you know, or array themselves in a class sense. It's much more invented on the spot, which, yeah. which is very interesting. That was my experience moving from New York as well, where suddenly what felt to be a relatively ossified, structured place disappears, and you're in this expansive, weird, loose, disparate geography that sprawls, and it is an extremely different experience. Yeah, you confront yeah. yourself in a very puzzling way. It's sort of like, okay, w what do you want to be? Right. Almost the geography is like an allegory of possibilities. Like, you could go over here. There's no center. You could be over yeah. there. What do you, you know, what, what do you like? <laughs> exactly. Um, and Nowhere City seems like a really perfect name or title because I also always think of invisible cities when I think of Los Angeles. I don't know if you've read that by yeah, Calvino. I love that book. Yeah. Well, in the in the end, they talk about the future cities. I remember Los Angeles is one of the culminating cities in Calvino's book. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, Lurie, for her part, ended up back in in Manhattan. I think I'm more permanently, uh, what, what would I say, disenfranchised or or um, deterritorialized, to use the uh, the Deleuze word. I'm of both places and nowhere now. That's perfect. And lucky for us, too. Jonathan Lethem, will you tell us the name again and the author? The book that I'm commending to your attention is Alison Lurie's The Nowhere City, which I think is her second novel. Great. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Oh, it's been a pleasure. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Errol Morris whose new documentary is The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography.
I've read that the film, I've read it described as lighthearted in comparison to your other work, but I actually found that there's... I always think that lighthearted is spelt L-I-T-E or something like that. <laughs> uh, That's the beer yeah. can version. <laughs> um, but actually, it has many dark elements in that it's someone dealing with the death of a few things. For instance... Like everything. Yeah. That would I mean, be a few things. All right. I mean, it's someone who seems like they're winding down their life's work, whose medium has basically died, and who's going through lots of people in their life, photographs of people who are no longer around. And so there is a sense of darkness or sadness, melancholy that pervades the film. And um, it made me wonder what relevance that aspect of the story had for you in particular, or if that was a resonant aspect of the film to you, and even uh, how you have navigated the kind of phasing out of film, if that's something you, because with Elsa and her and photography, we don't think of the vast changes in photography over the last hundred years, but the fact that there are now, that someone could practice a medium that just is no longer, you know, it was very difficult. She won't be able to take Polaroids anymore, large format Polaroids. And if that's something you've struggled with as, as things have phased from, from film to digital, or have you embraced the new technology? or It's easier, I believe, for a filmmaker. Everything has indeed changed, the whole process by which we edit films, shoot films, et cetera, et cetera, in the last 20 years, it's all different. But I continue making films. Elsa's situation is different. She's so much wedded to that whole process for many, many reasons. Mm. Uh, Not just the chemistry of a Polaroid photograph, but again, that whole relationship thing, going to Elsa's studio, standing with Elsa next to the camera, having your photograph taken, watching it develop. There's an apprehension. Will the photograph be any good? (laughs) Did I fuck it up in some way? Did I do my part? Elsa says somewhere in the movie, what you see is what you get. Did I do my part in in the making of this photograph? And early on, I remember her taking a photograph of me and my wife, and thinking, you know, I don't really like this photograph so much. And I said something to Elsa, and Elsa said, well, wait 10 years and look at it again. (laughs) (laughs) And in many instances, uh, I have done just that, more than 10 years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years. And Elsa is absolutely right. The photographs take on... I don't think gravitas is the right word, but they take on new and richer meanings over time, particularly uh, people that uh, have died. Uh, There's a picture that she took of my mother and stepfather Mm -hmm. that is very, very important to me. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to have it. She is so... much a Polaroid photographer. I can't really quite think of her without the camera. So Mm. I think in that sense it's different. In one sense it isn't different because the themes in this movie are themes that are important to me and have been part of many movies that I've made. When I was in college, the poetry of of Yeats meant a lot to Mm. me. It still means a lot to me. 
And there's a poem that he wrote, Lapis Lazuli. It's one of Yeats's last poems, which is a masterpiece. And it is about the evanescence of everything, the impermanence of everything. All things fall and are built again. And it's a reminder, what's left after all of this, really? You know, is it the art? Yes, perhaps in part, but that could vanish. It could fade or be forgotten or disappear under a host of sundry circumstances. What she reminds me is what remains, and I hope I'm not being too maudlin here, is love and friendship. The rest might not be worth much. So if the question is, have I learned anything from Elsa? I've learned an amazing amount from Elsa. That's it. I also wanted to talk about, you know, she does talk in the film about her aesthetic being kind of literary. So you had said that, for example, you think of her also as both a photographer and a poet, right? She also has, so I was thinking about the fiction aspect, and she has this amazing moment, I think it's maybe about a third of the way through the film, in which she talks about how what she actually likes, that first of all, she claims that photographs are fiction, like they aren't, what she loves about them is the fact that they are not real and wh- how she defends this because I was struck by this because it's like on the one hand good for Elsa nothing, yeah, nothing <laughs> I agree be, nothing could be or could seem to be more real especially when you look at her photos right they capture this mundanacity um, is that of, a word? Prob- probably not. That's notification. <laughs> I'm thinking she, about it. She, she captures I mean, the banality. She, yeah, but ban- no, it's not banal. She captures the mundane quality, the which is not the quotidian nature. Yeah, there sure. you go. The quotidian nice. nature of, of life and her in the granular details that she can capture in those photos, and yet she'll say that it's like, well, you could take a photo at any different moment, and it could tell a different story or a different perspective. So I was thinking about this also for you as a documentary filmmaker: is what's kind of the relationship between between fiction not as lies, but rather like kind of storytelling and the visual medium? There's a complicated relationship between, even in documentary filmmaking, which is supposed to be about the real world, Mm. uh, a complicated relationship between the real world and what you're doing. Uh, Now we're treated, there are all kinds of coffee table books that show you, you know, the contact sheets of various famous photographers and famous photographs. There's a book of contact sheets, Diane Arbus, for example. And so you can see the picture of the boy with a hand grenade in the park, and you can see all of the pictures that were taken at the same time, more or less, that that picture was taken, and how different they all are. Mm. They're all different. She selected one among many. That's interesting. It's also interesting that Elsa didn't have that opportunity. It's not like she has a contact sheet that she can circle the image that she likes best. And it's even more severe because she'll take, say, for the sake of argument, two Polaroids. And she doesn't decide which is the good one. Her client actually picks the A-side, as it were, the... The, the photograph which has value versus the one that's the also ran, the mm. one that's not so good. Right. And it's one of the many ironies of the film that often the B-side photographs are the superior photographs, if not equal to the A-side, even better. The metaphor runs in a whole number of different directions. Elsa's a B-side photographer. She never got her due as a major artist. Mm. Perhaps because 
she's not a self-promoting photographer. She never went in search of galleries and a certain kind of artistic recognition. She just plied her trade. She just went to work and took more and more and more and more photographs. And there's something kind of amazing about it. You know, you're talking here to a person who whines all the time and complains about what he's doing. Elsa actually is my polar opposite. I noticed in the film it took me a while to realize, oh, this is one long, it's kind of centered around one long interview. Am I right? There's, you did one big shoot or long yes, shoot. that's correct. And then there's a couple of kind of inserted other instances. Is that rare for you? Do you usually do a lot? I mean, how many hours do you normally have to choose from when you're putting together a documentary? It varies completely. With Elsa, I probably could have had as much time as we needed, except for the fact that Elsa just turned 80. She tires easily. Right. We had as much we needed. We started putting together the film immediately when we started shooting. I sometimes hear of people that shoot a lot of stuff and don't bother to start editing for a year or two years or whatever. We started editing immediately. Right after you were done shooting? Not even after we were oh, done. Oh, well, as you were shooting. shooting. <laughs> I see. And is that your normal? Is that? Yeah. It, and does that help your interview process in that you'll shoot, you'll see what you have, and then you'll know what more you need that you're Absolutely. putting together the film in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could, do you have like a couple golden rules of interviewing that you could pass along? I do. I'm sorry to say I do. Can you tell us what they <laughs> are since you're the one of the foremost interviewers? Um, never sh show up with a list of questions. Don't believe in questions because... If you have a list of questions, you're not really listening. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about your questions and what the possible answers to those questions might be. I always know an interview is going to be bad if I see someone with a list of questions that they tick off one by one. I even thought at one point that all questions were rhetorical questions. No one ever wanted to hear the answer to a question. They just wanted to hear themselves speak. In the classroom, that's certainly true. <laughs> and during conferences, Q&As. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the rules. Another rule came from uh, a police officer who arrested me in Berkeley, California for parking tickets. I was taken to the station. How many I parking had, tickets did you have? I had a lot of parking tickets. Oh, my tickets. God. That was very, very, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I had no idea how I was going to pay them either. I was arrested at a supermarket, taken in handcuffs to the police station, and they threw me in this room, and I noticed that um, the door handle, there was a door handle on the outside, but no door handle on the inside. For the worst parking offenders. For the worst parking offenders, yeah. such as myself. Right. And Famous room. So I asked the police officer, and this is a very fundamental principle of interviewing. I asked him, well, officer, why is there no door handle on the inside and there's a door handle on the outside? And he looked at me and he said, hey, you, shut the fuck up. Another fundamental principle of interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, I think we have to um, a beautiful place to end, end <laughs> our conversation. Thank you so much, Errol Morris, for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm a fan. Thank you. 
We've Hello. been speaking with Aaron Morris. His new film is the B-side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. <laughs>